Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Will you please welcome author of a book that's been on the New York Times bestseller list for 80 weeks. It describes murder and strange and curious behavior in Savannah, Georgia. The book is called Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Please welcome John Barron to West Coast Live. Well, thank you for coming to uh, West Coast Live. Nice to be here. This, uh, this book is uh, the result of, you, you, you discovered Savannah by what, taking advantage of a low airfare? Well, in the early 80s, uh, there were the super saver airfares, and I was at a, a Nouvelle Cuisine restaurant, which was very big in New York at the time, and I looked at the price of entrees, and they were $19, $29, $39, $49, and I thought, I've seen those figures somewhere before today. And I realized it was in one of those full-page ads in the New York Times advertising super saver airfares to cities around the country. And I thought, well, some of these cities I had never been to, Charleston, New Orleans, and I could skip the uh, expensive Nouvelle Cuisine, maybe, and go on a three-way, three-day vacation to one of these American cities. And that's how I wound up in Savannah for uh, a weekend. For, For a weekend and then eight years? I became seduced by a city. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. People must say this about San Francisco a lot. But Savannah is unlike any other city in the world, actually. It's laid out in a grid pattern of streets with beautiful garden squares every other intersection. And it's an isolated city off on the Georgia coast. Americans don't know too much about it, or it hadn't anyway. And I had only heard the name. And Savannah itself is a beautiful name. The city lives up to the beauty of the name itself. And it's isolated. There's a very uh, soft atmosphere. It's gentle. The air is soft and sort of humid, and it's very quiet. There's a hush in Savannah, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's a, a restored 19th century town, beautiful townhouses and mansions, and as I say, the whole thing is a garden. It looks like a garden. And it was, uh, and it's this way in the south because it was saved uh, from during Sherman's march to the sea, where everything else got burned. Savannah was, was built by cotton merchants. They were businessmen, they were very smart. So when the Civil War started, it looked as though uh, Sherman was going to overrun uh, Savannah. He had 70,000 men, they had 10,000. They were very shrewd. They went out to meet him and they said, if you won't fire a shot and won't burn down Savannah, we won't shoot at you and we'll just let you come on in. And he came in, he took the, uh, Sherman stayed in the grandest mansion in Savannah. It was the first mansion in the South to have indoor plumbing. And then he moved on after two weeks, and he burned uh, Columbia, South Carolina to the ground. So they're very shrewd. And so Savannah wasn't burned at all. And they wound up with an intact city after the Civil War. Is this, is this the only really intact city uh, in the South now? I don't think so. But it's, it's certainly it's one of the largest restored historic areas in the country uh, recognized by the National Trust. It's three square miles of pretty untouched uh, downtown, 19th century, early 19th century uh, city. And the city plan is regarded as unique in the world by city planners, and it's in all the textbooks because of these squares uh, placed regularly. It's a shame that uh, more cities didn't follow this lead. Now you, of course, write about the architecture and the history of this in your book, but more interestingly, you also write about the inhabitants of today, a very curious group of people. Well, in Savannah, uh, as in other cities in the South, the the favorite pastime is gossip. And of course, you gossip about other people. You don't gossip about the trees or the buildings. So the more spectacular the people, 
the better the gossip. So eccentrics are encouraged. They're loved. Uh, and if, whereas in other cities, if somebody's a little bit off, he's shunned. In Savannah, he's loved. He's appreciated. And people sort of, they understand that, and they develop their personalities uh, as if they were artworks. And I was very taken by this, and I met a lot of very unusual people and uh, worked them into the book. The, uh, I'd like to hear you read in, a, in your own voice a bit of, uh, of this book that sort of sets a little bit of the scene of the social aspect of uh, Savannah. And uh, <laughs> you know the book, uh, know the book. inside now. How long did it take you to write the book? Seven years. All right. This, I said gossip. Well, so I just pick something that illustrates that. Jim Williams lived in the grandest mansion in Savannah, Mercer House, built by the, uh, the songwriter Johnny Mercer's great-grandfather before the Civil War, and it's on Monterey Square, the most beautiful squares uh, of the squares. Williams picked up the decanter of Madeira and refilled our glasses. Drinking Madeira is a great Savannah ritual, you know, he said. It's a celebration of failure, actually. The British sent whole shiploads of grapevines over from Madeira in the 18th century in hopes of turning Georgia into a wine-producing colony. Savannah's on the same latitude as Madeira. Well, the vines died, but Savannah never lost its taste for Madeira, or any other kind of liquor for that matter. Prohibition didn't even slow things down here. Everybody had a way of getting liquor, even the old ladies, especially the old ladies. A bunch of them brought, bought a Cuban rum runner and ran it back and forth between here and Cuba. Williams sipped his Madeira. One of those ladies died just a few months ago, old Mrs. Morton. She was a marvel. She did exactly as she pleased all her life, God bless her. Her son came home from Chris for Christmas vacation one year and brought his college roommate with him. Mama and the college roommate fell in love. <clears throat> the roommate moved into the master bedroom with her. Daddy moved into the guest bedroom and the son went back to college and never came home again. <laughs> from then on, Mr. and Mrs. Morton and the, and the roommate lived in that house under those circumstances until the old man died. They kept up appearances and pretended nothing at all outrageous had happened. Mama's young lover served as her chauffeur. Whenever he dropped her off and picked her up at her bridge parties, the other ladies would peer out at them through the Venetian blinds, but they never let on that they were interested, because nobody, nobody ever mentioned his name in her presence. Williams fell silent for a moment, no doubt reflecting upon the recently departed Mrs. Morton. Through the open window, Monterey Square was quiet, except for the rasp of a cricket and the passing now and then of a car unhurriedly negotiating the turns around the square. What do you suppose would happen, I asked, if the tour guides told that sort of story to their busloads of tourists? Not possible, said Williams. They keep it very prim and proper. I told Williams that as I was coming up the walk earlier, I had heard the guide on one of the tour buses talking about this house. Bless their boring little hearts, said Williams. What did the guide say? She said that the house was the birthplace of the famous songwriter Johnny Mercer, the man who wrote Moon River, I Want to Be Around, Too Marvelous for Words, and the other standards. Wrong, but not completely off base, said Williams. What else? That last year, Jacqueline Onassis offered to buy the house and everything in it for $2 million. The guide gets C- minus for accuracy, said Williams, and now I'll tell you what really happened. Jim Williams, the character is a, uh, the, the, or the person is a, uh, is an antique stealer. He makes piles of money. He's viewed by the uh, the, the traditional Savannah society's nouveau riche 
but he's very proud of that. He says, Rish, so what? What else does it matter? <laughs> yes, that's the only word of those two words that counts, the, the Rish. And there's a, a, a murder that follows in, in, in the book, and along the way, we meet uh, characters such as uh, the man who invented the flea collar. And the no-pass strip, let's not forget that. Uh, Eli Whitney, by the way, invented the cotton gin in Savannah, so the inventors have a, a very large niche in the history of Savannah. Luther Driggers works in an insectary. An insectary is a government laboratory where uh, poisons are tried out on barnyard insects. So he would, his job was to take various poisons and inject them into the chest cavities of insects one by one, which is about as exacting a kind of work uh, as, as I think watchmaking is. And, and it's very hard if you uh, have been drinking a lot the night before, as Luther usually did. And uh, so it was very tough work for him. But what he did do is the, um, he had a bottle of poison stronger, uh, 500 times stronger than arsenic, and he had this bottle of poison at home. And if he poured it into the water supply of Savannah, it was a rumor he could kill everybody in Savannah, men, women, and children. Uh, so he was a feared person. I've seen this bottle of poison. He also, for fun, would anesthetize houseflies and glue threads, lengths of thread, to their backs. And then when they woke up, he would walk them around as if the thread were a leash, and they'd be flying above him. So he was known for that and a few other things, too. How did you uh, meet these, this uh, gentleman? Well, I met him in Clary's Drugstore, which is where you meet a lot of people, because it's the place in the, where in the morning um, people would gather for their coffee and their breakfast before going to work, and the, all sorts of gossip was exchanged, and you would either be told things or overhear them. You very often listen to other people's conversations. So I met Luther Driggers in the drugstore one morning. He had a peculiar ritual. He would order Coke uh, and ammonia, Spirits of ammonia, don't, not, that's a drink that some people, I think, like him. Obviously, he does. And, and Coca-Cola and, and spirits of ammonia mixed together, and he'd order eggs and bacon. And he sometimes would simply stare at it and then leave the restaurant without eating it, <laughs> which meant that his demons were stirring, and people would then worry, what about the poison? Is he going to dump it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this is the sort of eccentric that people in Savannah enjoyed. They love him. They love him. <laughs> Now, as a, as a uh, you, you came from New York. Are you originally from New York? Upstate New York, yes. How were you uh, accepted into, into this uh, way of life? Well, I'll tell you. Um, I, was, I was very open about what I was doing. I said, I'm here to write a book. And they looked at me and they said, who would ever want to read a book about Savannah? I said, well, every story has to happen somewhere. Should I, do you think I should write instead about uh, Eatonton, Georgia? And people say, oh, God, no, that little town. I said, well, that's where the color purple happened. So everything has to, well, they thought that was a good uh, explanation. So, but after five years, there was no book. It took me seven years. I'm a very careful writer. And the rumor got around Savannah, oh, he's not writing a book after all. <laughs> they thought, he's just one of our many eccentrics. And his eccentricity is that he's not really, he's supposed, supposedly writing a book and he's not. So we'll just humor him and let him interview us and that'll be that. <laughs> so I was invited to all their houses and they would uh, tell me stories and I would take note of all of them. They would act out outrageously act their lives out, and I wrote it all down. <laughs> so, so then, uh, in 1993, so, uh, seven years later, January 1993, word got out that Random House had indeed bought a book I had written about Savannah, and panic hit Savannah. <laughs> <clears throat> what have we told him? Are we, am I in the book? There are these terrible people, there's this murder, there's a black drag queen, there's a man who, who has poison, could kill us all, all these strange people. Who will ever want to come to Savannah? Well, then the book came out, <clears throat> And they read the book, 
and a, this vast sigh of relief was heard in Savannah because it's clear that I had written it with great affection for the town. And as a matter of fact, tourism has more than doubled since the book came out, and a lot of that must be, I'm told, due to the book. And so they're very pleased. And uh, I am told that the uh, windfall so far, because of extra tourism, is $100 million. They can't hate me for that. <laughs> and the, uh, it's curious that they, the people of Savannah wanted to keep industry of any kind, including light industry, out. But somehow tourism, uh, which is not exactly a light industry, is now thriving there. Yes, they kept Prudential out. Uh, Prudential wanted to bring a non-smokestacked headquarters to Savannah. Yeah, I forget when it was, or late 50s, something like that. And Savannah simply didn't turn its back on them. You know? And so Prudential went to Jacksonville, two and a half hours south. Uh, John Carlo Manani was thinking of bringing his Spoleto Festival to Savannah, and they all, and the same thing, they just turned, weren't interested at all, didn't help him, didn't, you know, smoothed the way, so he went to Charleston, which was two, mile, two hours north. Um, Savannah is happy to see tourists because they leave. <laughs> <clears throat> Savannah is an isolated town and likes to be apart from everyone else by itself. That, that apartness also leads to uh, a lot of insularity. And, and, uh, uh, what is the, the practice of, uh, of voodoo, and how did it tie in with the judicial system of Savannah? <laughs> Well, voodoo came from Africa to the West Indies, from there to the slaves brought it to um, the East Coast. And it survives in the low country, particularly in South Carolina, just over the river, and in some places in Savannah itself. Jim Williams was on trial for murder. He had a very expensive lawyer, but he hedged his bets by hiring Minerva, a voodoo priestess, to... Part of his dream team. Part of his dream team. <laughs> Uh, to put a curse on the district attorney and various other things. And I went with them one time to the graveyard, and, and Minerva called it the flower garden, or the garden. And we went to see her in Beaufort, which was a 45-minute drive, one night, and she said, uh, well, we're going to the flower garden. We're going at dead time. Dead time lasts for one hour. A half an hour before midnight to half an hour after midnight. The first half hour is for doing good. Second half hour is for doing evil. Seems like we need, need a little bit of both tonight, so we best be on our way. At the stroke of midnight, you can scoop up uh, dirt taken from a grave at the stroke of midnight, and it's powerful stuff to throw on someone's porch and, and put a curse on them. So uh, when I wrote that chapter of our trip to the graveyard, which is actually very funny, uh, I entitled it Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And then I looked at that title and I thought, hmm, that's Savannah. So I made it the title of the book. What has been your experience when you've gone back to Savannah? Or would you go back and, and live there, become an eccentric in that town, you know, well-to-do recluse author? Well, what happened was, uh, <clears throat> when I go back now, uh, they're very sweet. And uh, I can't walk two or three blocks in, uh, in the street without someone stopping a car and saying, can I give you a lift? I loved your book, all that. They're very nice. I mean, I enjoy going back. I go back <clears throat> once a month now, for some reason or other. There was a, a character, uh, uh, Lady Chablis, who has developed uh, a following. Lady, <coughs> Lady Chablis is a, is a black drag queen with a wonderful sense of humor. She, uh, she's, an, uh, uh, she's a comedian, she's very original, and uh, she figures in this story rather prominently. She's become very famous. She uses just what, just enough hormones to maintain her femininity? To keep, to keep she says, uh, she has kept her candy, as she puts it. Uh, <laughs> but she, <coughs> she takes enough, <laughs> She, 
She takes enough hormones to keep a chest on me, she says. And uh, she's, she is, as I say, enormously funny. And um, she's now, uh, she, she's very famous throughout the South. And tourists who come to Savannah all want to go and see her, so she has to give her early show a little earlier so the old ladies in the tour buses can, can, can go before they see her before they go to, to bed. But uh, also, she, I, I didn't, Warner Brothers is going to make a movie of, of Midnight, and uh, I made them promise that if anybody in the book who is in the book for real wants to play themselves in the movie, they will at least be screen tested. And of course, Shibli is already online to screen test for herself. Uh, and I would not like to be the... Um, the casting director who tells her she doesn't look the part. <laughs> um, there is one, there's one actress, uh, singer-actress, who already wants to play Chablis. Uh, Diana Ross has been letting it be known that she's crazy about Chablis. She's always wanted to play a drag queen anyway. And so she, uh, I don't know if she'll get the part. I have nothing to do with the movie. Well, she's certainly been portrayed by drag queens. That's right. That, and she, well, which is very, you know, it's funny in that level, yes. Uh, it would be sort of like Victor Victoria, a woman playing a drag queen playing a woman, so. I don't know if we'll get it, but she'll get it. The uh, part of your, uh, your life as a writer has included being a columnist for Esquire magazine. Uh, can you, and you're now a contributing editor there, uh, can you go back to sort of the humdrumness of just writing magazine articles now after this novel? Oh, well, it's not novel, but I mean, account. Yeah. I have already done that. Uh, I have written a piece for The New Yorker since the book came out, and a piece for Vanity Fair about Pat Conroy. Uh, in the May issue, and a piece for Architectural Digest, and I just did a little something for Esquire. I won't do a monthly column because I want to write another book, but I consider magazines my, my home, but I, I now want to concentrate on book writing. That, uh, what was it uh, about that eight years in Savannah, I mean, that sticks with you most? I mean, is there something, a fragrance in the air, a, a sort of a, a glimmer in people's eyes? Well, people will laugh when you say fragrance in the air because if the wind is blowing in the wrong direction, you get the smell of rotten eggs from the paper mill, uh, which is an hour, uh, a, a mile outside of downtown. But there is a lovely smell in the air, and it's, and it's very often wisteria or magnolia. There is a, soft, a gentleness about the atmosphere. The, 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 uh, the, the vegetation, I think, as for me, the vegetation is the primary beauty of Savannah. The houses are very close second, and the city plan is, of course, the squares make it unique. There is just a lovely, lovely feeling to Savannah. People who, who came down there to visit me when I was writing the book would go home to New York and, and call me and say, I'm still high from my trip to Savannah. You know? and, and since the book's come out, as I said, a lot of people going down there, they finish reading the book, and they say, well, I want to go and see Savannah. And uh, they love it. People really are, taken, are swept away by Savannah. What has been the fate of the uh, play tour guide here for uh, a moment? What has become the, the fate of the, uh, the Mercer House, the, the sort of centerpiece? <clears throat> Jim Williams' sister has moved into it. She lives there now. And uh, there are tourists by the dozens at any hour of the day or night taking pictures from the outside. I feel a little guilty about that, but can't be helped. There are, it happens to houses here in San Francisco, for instance, the one that was used in Mrs. Doubtfire. People now drive by and take pictures, and I, th I don't know, I think it may even have been up for sale because people got tired of the tourists going by. Well, if, if uh, Jim Williams' sister ever wanted to sell Mercer House, she'd probably get double what she would have gotten before, so I think that's needs compensation. The book is called Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Barents, published by Random House, and thank you very much for stopping by on West Coast Live. Thank you. Pleasure. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.